Hi and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. This is episode 17 and I'm Dave and this is a series of short stories about my 28 year career in the UK police force covering various uh, things that I've done throughout my career. Hopefully you found it interesting so far if you've listened to any of the previous stories and if this is your first time well hopefully it'll inspire you to listen to some more. So today we're going to talk about uh, public order which is um, disturbances you know can be large fights or riots at the sort of very upper end of it. Um, This incident we'll talk about today as well as a bit of background about public order is probably the closest thing I came to a riot um, I'm sure some people that have been in what I would call, you know, proper riots would, would laugh at this one, but uh, this is the closest I got. So public order is the guys and girls that you see on the telly with all the big, they're called NATO helmets with the visors and the big pads on their legs and arms, you know, and the shields. That's public order in the UK police force. That's what it's called. And there's various levels of that. And uh, most cops uh, at the beginning of their career are trained in the very basic level of it. And then you can go on to do further training to get the sort of upper levels. And if you're on a full-time team, then you'll be level one, which is the sort of highest in this country. And that's trained in everything, you know, and it does incorporate a number of things as well as the sort of policing of demos that that could get out of hand for various reasons. Um, I mean, the history of this is that back in the sort of 80s, there was things in the UK and London like the Brixton riots. And really, there was no sort of provision made for cops in that scenario they basically had their top hats on, their custodians, the traditional sort of British Bobby's uh, helmet, you know, and that was it. They improvised at the time, and also we saw that on some of the footage uh, at the minor strike as well, which is also in the 80s. Um, and uh, basically cops were picking up dustbin lids at the time, metal round dustbin lids that had a handle on top, and they were using them effectively almost like sort of Roman centurions to ward off um, you know, bricks that were raining down on them. Uh, and other than that, you know, and their and their helmet, if they had it on, that was all they had for protection. So there was a lot of injuries and uh, it probably started before that, but certainly in earnest, I think public order was looked at then in terms of training, <coughs> excuse me, and kit, you know, that they would, would have. Um, so uh, some of the things we saw at those previous riots, again, tip this over is, you know, petrol bombs being thrown at the time. There was very little protection from that at all. Um, we would also see, certainly in the minor strikes, things like nails that were nailed through the front of kind of steel toe cap boots. And then uh, police officers were kind of kicked in the legs with these boots with the nails through. So there were some fairly bad injuries through that. Um There was all sorts of improvised weapons and things used against cops, as well as pretty much everything. And nowadays we quite often see cobbled streets or, you know, walls that are nearby or anything broken down and broken up enough that creates rubble that you can basically throw at the police. Um, So something kind of needed to to happen in terms of the training and the kit. So there's three types of shield. There's what's called a short shield, which is this really uh, a bit like the dustbin lids, but plastic, you know, so it's a round shield that looks like a kind of Roman centurion, covers, you know, the upper part of your body, really effective. The great thing about a short shield is that it's very easy to move around with. It's lightweight, you can be mobile. And because it's got a couple of sort of hoops on the back metal hoops that you put your arms through, you're able to still grab hold of people and have use of both your hands, but the shield stays with you. It's not going to get sort of taken off you and taken back in the crowd quite good at deflecting um, missiles and things but when I say missiles I mean rocks as opposed to something fired from a warship 
Um, but the problem is you have to see them coming. You know, you have to be looking to the sky, and as the missiles come over, you're effectively moving your arm up with your your round shield on to to deflect those those missiles. You know, it's not like it's just going to protect you willy nilly if you don't see it coming. Then you move on to like the intermediate shield. Um, this is what a lot of forces use. Uh, they're kind of three quarters height, so if you held them up against your chest, they might come up to the bottom of your chin and maybe halfway down your thigh on the sort of average person. So it gives you a lot more protection and, and a decent width as well, again, covers you width-wise. The other thing those shields had the ability to do was lock together. You could basically um, lock them together with you, the person standing next to your shield, and they could do the same, and you could actually form again, going back to kind of you know Roman shield tactics, um, you could lock all these shields together, and it gave you a really good um, protection You know that was locked together, so it was solid. Uh, you could also put sort of overhead protection again exactly like you see in sort of roman times from arrows so you'd have this line of locked together shields above your head and you'd have some in front of you and you could move forward as a unit i mean you w really were a target then but obviously you had the protection so you could sort of take a certain amount of, of incoming you know uh, rocks and bricks and etc petrol bombs um, and then finally you have the full shield um not many forces use these, well, certainly didn't in my time. Um, they're very cumbersome, you know, they're really heavy. And basically, sort of a six-foot person standing up, they'll come to the top of your head, and also they'll be resting on the ground at that point. You know, they're, they're full height, so great for protection, um, but not very mobile, very heavy, you know, difficult to run with. That was part of the kind of physical fitness test to get into the public order. You had to be able to run with an intermediate shield, in fairness, not a full shield, but a certain distance. And that was based certainly locally on the fact that there'd been an assistant shout once where the public order guys had to run, I think it was like half a mile with a shield, um, and then still deal with the big disturbance the other end. So that was sort of part of the, the training, which was fair enough because that was actually based on, you know, a live job. So, yeah, there was, a, there was definitely a sort of an upper level of fitness required for the public order. Uh, and in terms of the kit nowadays, you have... The NATO that we've already talked about, which is the big helmet with a visor that comes down the front. It's also got a neck guard. You probably have got, and it varies in forces again, but you know, you've probably got arm guards, shin guards. Uh, the guys will have a cricket box on, you know, um, as well as your normal body armor. Um, so you're reasonably well protected, but places that are vulnerable are, say, um, kind of your thighs can be. Although, again, I've seen lots of forces with sort of thigh protectors too. I never actually had those, but. Uh, thighs can be vulnerable and so can the tops of shoulders, although some forces I see have issued, you know, kind of shoulder protection it looks a bit like kind of the American football armour, you know, that goes over your shoulders. So uh, different, different kit. Um, and the good thing is the overalls you wear are now all flame retardant. And obviously that's vital if you're having petrol bombs thrown at you during the training. Again, you know, you'll go through. That's one of the things that happens. Uh, you're taught how to deal with it and then you all line up and basically the instructors throw petrol bombs at your feet that kind of explode at your feet and cover you in petrol and effectively set you alight but you are relying very much on the kit you know that it is flame retardant and generally it is you kind of stamp your feet you'll have a friend standing nearby with a, a small fire extinguisher but generally stamping your feet is kind of enough to put it out and and the fact that you know this flame retardant stuff you just you can't set it alight um but quite a scary thing the first time you do it. Um, certainly during the training as well, uh, you, you practice lots of the tactics. And we've already talked about, you know, kind of the Roman tactics and, and definitely some of them are. So you'll practice moving with your shields, connecting the shields together, overhead protection, 
and then eventually it moves on to basically the course gets split in half half of the course plays the rioters which of course is always great fun um and basically they'll have a collection of when i did the training it was like wooden bricks so they were still pretty heavy you know you wouldn't want to get hit with one but they weren't obviously full-size bricks because if you do get hit one of those you're talking almost guaranteed injuries so um yeah these uh when you're lined up and the first time you're taking fire if you like from bricks uh wooden bricks they come sailing through the air and initially you don't take it too seriously like it's wooden bricks i've got a big plastic shield you know it's not going to hurt that much and, and i'm going to stop them anyway but the noise is quite substantial of you know this flurry of sort of wooden bricks hitting the back of your shield and actually the odd one or two does sneak through and gets maybe on the thigh or on your shoulder it certainly makes you tighten up behind that shield you suddenly want to make yourself tiny and tuck in behind this shield but uh, it focuses the attention somewhat when you do get you know one in those vulnerable places because you know it might be a relatively lightweight wooden brick but you know you still feel it and it still hurts and and that's the idea really because it just it's not going to kill you unlikely to injure you possibly a bruise but it's really going to make you tighten up on those tactics so the training's excellent and i think when i did it, it was about a week for the sort of level two which is the mid-range public order um it was good fun basically you know and it was i have to say fairly sort of testosterone fueled there was quite a few alpha males there you know there was definitely at that point a sprinkling of females and now it's very much come on and it's a real mix um but these were generally male or female people that were well up for getting in you know kind of scraps quite frankly you know and and used to enjoy it with the kit and with your friends you know i hate to say it but some of the times it was good fun you know simple as that um so you also learn about cordons um and that's a question of you know if you wanted a cordon off a street for example you could put a line of cops across it there's various ways they can hang on to each other by using their belts um there's also things like um, filter cordons which is really useful so if you've got a line of cops and every other cop takes one step forward now if you're trying to get a crowd to walk through you effectively you're filtering that crowd you're slowing them down you're breaking them up and it's giving you a chance to have a look at them it's also really effective if during you know the uh the riot or the disturbance or whatever it is you'll have something called egt teams evidence gathering teams and they're the ones you see running around with uh cameras that will be filming the crowd and that's for evidential purposes um but also it helps pick out ringleaders because invariably you know if a crowd of 100 people throwing things at you you might have you know half a dozen people that are kind of pulling the strings and encouraging people to you know throw things and what have you and once those people are identified you potentially have snatch squads, you know, half a dozen cops running into a crowd and grabbing that person out and arresting them. Alternatively, you might put on a filter cordon if it's a bit lower level. And basically, as the crowds filter through you, you'll have spotters at the back that will have already identified the people you want to arrest. So as the crowd filters through and goes through and is split up by you, um, those ringleaders are grabbed and arrested, you know, and it's quite a good way of of uh, sort of taking out those those ringleaders, you know. So it works quite well. You can also use vehicles as well. You'll see the kind of the riot vans and they're equipped quite often with shields that uh, are on the front of the van that are raised up, but you've got the ability to come down and cover the windscreen with uh, a grill to stop, you know, windscreens being smashed. Um, they're also fitted with a paint thinner in a special window washer so that should you get paint thrown on the windscreen, you know, you can press a button and rather than getting water, you get paint thinner and therefore it just clears your windscreen because that became quite a popular tactic until those things started to get fitted, you know, to these vans. Um, so 
there's there's some good kit out there and then during this course normally um, or possibly as a separate course you'll also be taught moe which is method of entry it's basically smashing down doors to get into addresses whether that's because of you know it's a drug dealer's address or there's a siege in there or whatever reason you've got to to sort of smash a door down now again going back old school it used to be done with the foot and i've certainly kicked in doors sometimes it can go okay other times you can injure yourself look really stupid fall flat on your face and still not get in of course you stand up dust yourself off you know try and look like you know that's what you're meant to happen and, and carry on but um Sometimes, you know, you might have to revert to that if you had no kit with you and it, and it was urgent. Um, and then things moved on a little bit, again, sort of going back 20, 30 years, um, maybe more. They used to use sledgehammers, you know, but they're not very effective. And the thing is, if you swing them and hit them in the wrong place, i.e. you uh, miss the door and hit the door frame, something solid, you know, you, again, you can injure yourself. You know, there's some fairly bad injuries from these things. Um, certainly, we used to wear... Uh, arm guards uh, across our forearms because uh, one of my friends used what's called a huli bar, a hooligan bar, which is like a long metal bar with a spike on the end of it. And he was spiking a window with it. Um, and uh, he, he ended up with his arm carrying on through the window and he basically cut all his forearm open, quite a nasty injury, needed a number of stitches. So then we had this kind of slash proof armor that attached over our forearms. The huli bars are really good as well for outward opening doors. Because if you go into a briefing or if you've done a recce of an address, you're going to go and hit. The things you want to know about it are which side of the hinges on. Does the door open in or out? What's the, the build of the door? Is it wood? Is it UPVC? Is it plastic? You know, is it steel? You know, we've seen all sorts. Um, sometimes people have started putting grills across door, metal grills and locking them, you know. Um, sometimes for security, you know, because they're doing sort of criminal activity within and other times just because perhaps the area they live in. But one way or another, we pretty much managed to overcome all these things. So the main tools are your huli bar and also your enforcer, which is the big red key, as some people call it. That's the main thing that's weighted that you can swing and hit the door with. But there's a certain way of hitting it and um, there's certain things you can do to improve it. You don't have to be big and strong necessarily. It's more about technique. And that's what the course will teach you on the MOE side of things. Um, moving on. There's also things uh, we would use hydraulic frame spreaders. We used to carry like a small suitcase and in it, it had a, a metal bar that had kind of two clamps either end that would be placed in between the door frames. You'd press a button on the hydraulic pack, which was battery fed. So it's not like you had a big long cable running back to somewhere and uh, it would spread the frame. It would force the frame out. So any locks that were now in the door were effectively negated because the door the frame had been pushed open so far um that you could pretty much just push the thing push, push the door open with your finger you know because it had, it had pushed the lock back out of the way so it was no longer sort of connecting with the other side of the lock so they were very good and there was a smaller version of that called the uh, we called it the rabbit and basically it was a smaller hydraulic version that you could put in between a door or on the back of a hinge and then you literally just pumped this hydraulic pump a bit like a sort of pumping up a bike tire, something like that. Uh, and the same thing, really, it forced open um, the back end of the door uh, or popped the lock, you know, because it was able to put out a huge amount of force. And the good thing about those is very, very quiet. So if you're trying to do something, you know, slow time initially or very sneaky and getting into an address unknown, then you might choose to use a rabbit because apart from popping the lock, it could be really, really quiet and you could be in without them knowing, which is vital if you've got information specific to 
for example, that person is going to, you know, flush the drugs down the toilet or they're going to, you know, destroy the evidence in some way. Or possibly if there's really good intel, they've got weapons, because obviously, ideally, you want to get up and in their bedroom if they're in the bedroom and stop them getting anywhere near a weapon, not give them a heads up. You're coming through the door and give them a chance to pick up that bat, samurai sword, machete, firearm, whatever it is they're going for. So there's lots of good things. And then finally, and a lot more advanced, and I only really ever touched on it on some training. Uh, it came from the military. It's used more often uh, now in firearms operations and particularly with uh, specialist firearms officers, which is uh, EMOE, which is explosive method of entry. It came from the military and there's things like you would effectively have, if you were trying to get through a window or a door, you might have a piece of plywood that's roughly cut to the shape of that door or window you want to get through. Then uh, around that plywood, a piece of deck cord, detonation cord, is attached to that ply. It's run down a pole, the actual sort of firing wire, to the operator at the bottom. And he or she would simply hold up the piece of plywood flat against the window, press the button, which detonates the deck cord, and that whole window would just atomize, basically. And it wouldn't harm the person inside because it was so sort of extreme that it, it just, you know, the glass was blown into tiny little bits that weren't really going to harm anyone. So it was a great way of getting in, but very impactive you know it's not the sort of thing you'd use on a normal door knock because you know it's an explosion it's got smoke it's got flames you know it's got the whole thing so really really big deal as i say you certainly wouldn't use it in a sensitive area because you'd be accused very much of um you know heavy-handed policing but it had its place you know in certain things quite often we'd get uh, big drug dealers or whatever making it known via friends or whatever the police are never going to get in here this place is like fort knox you know well, we just took that as a challenge. And um, trust me, we found all sorts of uh, innovative ways of getting in these addresses. Um, so we'll move on then to uh, first two things. So I finished this training course. Brilliant. Really enjoyed it for, for a young person, you know, who, who's up for a bit of adventure, if you like. You know, it's a lot of running around and shouting and playing the bad guys. You also get to deal with like a violent man in a room. That's a classic. So they'll have just you in by yourself to deal with someone with, say, a baseball bat. And that'll be one of the instructors. And the violent man room, you know, it is exactly what it says. You know, there's, there's no place for wallflowers or snowflakes. Once you go in that room, you'll have a shield, but this person will not hold back and they'll have a baseball bat um, and they'll be going for it, smashing, you know, your shield to bits and trying to get you if you can, basically. But it was really just a minute of full-on sort of fighting to give you an idea of firstly how you could be protected, but also um, I think really just to face you with sort of real violence. Well, obviously it wasn't real violence, but it was about as close as you could get. You know, very few people came out of the violent man room and were like, oh yeah, that was no problems. You know, I'd never thought for a second he was actually going to hurt me because people did get hurt all the time. You know, the, the instructors absolutely went for it, you know. So um, there was some good tactics taught in there. And in fact, Quite often, if you've got someone back in a police station who's really kicking off in a cell or let's say they've had a dirty protest, so they've basically smeared crap, their own crap all over the walls and you have to move them to another cell, a dirty protest, you would call in public order who would get fully kitted, uh, possibly with a white suit on as well over top of their stuff to save them getting covered in shite, quite frankly. And uh, then there's this tactic for going in with shields and pinning someone against the wall and basically handcuffing them and dragging them to another cell. Um, while that one is cleaned, you know, and people will ask, well, why don't you just leave them there? But unfortunately, things like human rights come into play. So, you know, duty of care, etc. You have to look after these people, even though it's very frustrating sometimes. 
Um, so yeah, violent men would be, and cell sort of removal would be dealt with quite often. So we'll move on to, so I've done this train, I completed it, walked out the door, was feeling great, you know, had my head filled with uh, ideas of, you know, I was going to be into riots and all sorts going on. Well, the reality is it isn't quite like that. Um, so in the area that I worked, there was, um, unfortunately, there was a, a laboratory, a scientific lab, basically, that was used for breeding of animals that were then used in, in scientific experiments you know very unpleasant business you know you wouldn't have found a cop there that sort of agreed with it but ultimately you know to a degree we have to do what we're told so what had happened at this um at this place was um there'd been a lot of protests over this uh, when the sort of animal rights types found out about it and it was getting more and more violent it was coming to uh time where they were attacking the scientists coming in and out and members of their family and all sorts but there was sort of daily if not a, at one point I think virtually sort of 24 hours a day protests outside this lab um, so we were drafted in and this went on for months I mean I'm talking like I can't remember the exact time but it was probably six months this lasted um, it went on and on and we were drafted in as public order because some of the crowds that were turning up were kind of you know 100 200 people and it was getting more and more sort of violent as people were coming back and forward missiles were being thrown at them uh, members of staff sometimes sort of innocent people as well were getting caught up on it so it had a heavy sort of public order presence so having just newly qualified in public order um, myself and various colleagues were drafted in virtually every weekend on overtime it would be your day off and they'd be told right you've got two days off um, but uh, you're going to spend, you know, both of them now uh, at at this place, you know, sort of policing this demo. So, um, so it's not ideal losing your days off, but obviously you're paid overtime, but it did make for a long week, you know, no days off and then straight into the next week. But we got used to it after a while and uh, we were drafted in all the time. Now, like I said, you finish your training and have ideas that you're going to be involved in all this exciting stuff. The reality was we spent sometimes 12 hours a day with breaks in between obviously standing in front of these crowds basically policing them now in the main these were not you know nice crowds they hated us because they thought that we were siding you know with uh, the laboratory you know and that just wasn't the case but unfortunately as a cop you know when you're on duty you don't get to discuss your feelings your views you know uh, you basically have to toe the party line like I say to a degree uh, you know, you'll do what you're told. Um, so we were told, stand on there and, you know, prevent these demonstrators from, you know, having a sit down on the road or throwing missiles or whatever it was. That's what we did. Um, so, yeah, they were convinced that obviously we were siding with the lab. It definitely wasn't the case. So I didn't know a single cop who sort of agreed with it. Um, and there was hundreds there. But um, so we spent all day so it's quite hard work. Because bear in mind, you've got your body armor on, you've got all your pads and all that. So you've got extra weight on but we would spend all day standing in front of these crowds who would basically have various songs and chants that they would sing at us all day. Um, and these weren't your normal protesters. This was a sort of blue rinse brigade. So you'd regularly have half a dozen uh, sort of old women turn up with their you know, purple dyed hair and get wheeled out in wheelchairs in front of you along with the rest of the crowd. And all day long, they'd sing at you, you're evil, you're evil, you know, and it would just go on and on and on, repetitive with drums, etc. 
we'd also get kind of your scum, 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 scum all day long. And um, it was just wearing, quite frankly. You know, you'd stand there and you'd literally have to glaze over. It got to the point they were supplying us earplugs because, you know, you can imagine eight hours a day or whatever, standing in front of these people screaming at you all day long. And, you know, they'd be trying to wind you up. They'd be getting into you with, you know, oh, I bet you're proud, aren't you? You know, does your mum know you're doing this? You know, uh, and, and it would go on and on, but much worse than that, you know. So at the end of the day, you'd just be battered, you know, sort of uh, in terms of your ears. You'd, you've had 10 hours of people shouting and screaming at you all day long and hating on you, basically. It would it was definitely quite wearing. Um, but as I say, you would just literally glaze over. And then after a while, you know, sort of six hours into it, whatever, they'd be saying, what's the matter with you? Cheer up. You know, it's not that bad. It'll never happen. Or and you're like, yeah, come and swap places and stand here for a few hours and just get shouted at all day long. You know, it's, um, but they never kind of, when I was there, generally tipped over the edge into the point that you were going to start making arrests. Um, so it wasn't the best introduction to public order, really. It was pretty frustrating. It wasn't at all what I thought public order was. But the reality is that's what a lot of it is. It's demos, you know, it's policing demos. It's walking alongside demos who are banging drums and waving placards about whatever it is that they're, you know, demonstrating against. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a poor show, really. Um, but and, and an unpleasant task all round. You know, no one enjoyed it. And it went on for months. But such is life. So... Um, some months later, I found myself um, getting put on now on a New Year's Eve. Obviously, there's a lot of trouble expected on a New Year's Eve in your average, you know, sort of UK town. There's always going to be extra cops on and probably a public order element as well, because that's the night that it's going to kick off. You know, you're going to get your pubs explode. You're going to get big fights, you know, and there's going to be lots of them. It won't just be one or two or three fights like it uh, kind of normally is. This will be full on, you know, lots of fights. And a great example was I was on a bus one night, in fact, my very first New Year's Eve, and uh, we were driving around, and I'd never worked one, and, and all the old sweats had put into me, oh, you wait and see what happens, you know, it's going to go crazy. And there was like 12 of us in the bus, and we were all up for trouble, should it happen? And we're driving around, and, and nothing happened. It was like, you know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, there was nothing going until half 11. I don't think we'd had a call, you know, and there was something, you know, we might have normally put out, I don't know, six cars, and on this night we had... 12 cars out, you know, and two extra buses with half a dozen or, or, you know, maybe a dozen sort of riot cops in as well. We were really, you know, well, well ready for it and, and nothing happened. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And I, I'm thinking they're winding down, you know, nothing's going to happen. And at 23.59, every single unit was available and nothing was happening. At midnight, the place just exploded. Literally about one minute past midnight, first call came in. So-and-so pub, someone's been glassed. About 30 seconds later, such-and-such nightclub, someone's been stabbed. You know, and this is how it went on. And I'm not kidding, by about 10 past midnight, um, all of those units I've just talked about, so all those resources were committed to go into a, a fight, a stabbing, a disturbance, whatever it was. You know, it just exploded. I've never known anything like it. And that's how it went for about the next three or four hours. And it was only by about five in the morning that we'd finally sort of dealt with all the calls. There'd been about 20 people arrested across various sort of jobs. So it was crazy. So I was quite up for the posting I got a few months after the the science lab job, which was to be formally posted to the kind of riot bus, um, uh, the battle bus on a New Year's Eve. Um, so it meant that you weren't going to go to all the what we might think of as you know the crappy calls. We were only going to the good stuff. They'd hold us back for for the sort of the big stuff. 
And um, it was a big deal. You know, you had some really good guys and girls on that van. I think there was about a dozen of us fully kitted. We had all the shields. We had everything. NATOs. We were, we were ready. And um, exactly the same thing happened. Only, bizarrely, after midnight, not a lot happened. You know, there wasn't that flurry of calls. Very little happened. So I was like, oh, blimey. You know, this is a bit of rubbish. I was pretty disappointed. And we actually got stood down early. We were told that we were going to be on until probably four in the morning. But by two in the morning, all the clubs had kicked out and people had gone home. The pubs were closed and that was done. There was basically nothing done. So the inspector in charge said, do you know what? I'm just going to let you go. You're done. So we were like, great. Um, well, we were great, but also I was pretty frustrated. I know a few of the other young lads were too, because we were really hoping we were going to kind of get amongst it. Well, what we didn't know was that was still to come. So typically uh, we go back to the Nick and we all, you know, get our kit off and change into our civilian clothes. So now uh, we've got no kit at all. And we're basically in kind of, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and a jacket. And um, somebody still had a radio on in one of their lockers because uh, we'd all sort of turned our radios off at that point. And suddenly out of nowhere, big urgent assistance went up uh, not far from, from the police station. And the person who put it up was someone who was really well known and, and basically kind of quite a tough guy. You know, he just didn't put out urgent assistance calls for fun. So everyone took it seriously. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, we're off duty. We've got no kit. And we're like, we're not going to leave him. So we'll just go. So we just ran out in our sort of jeans. We each grabbed a baton. We had the metal ex expandable batons by then, you know, so they're kind of, I don't know, about 12 inches long. And then you flick them out to the side and they extend to sort of a couple of feet or so. Um, they're quite good uh, bits of kit. So we basically grabbed a baton each. Uh, run out into the first marked car we could find. And there's about six of us in two cars, jumped in these cars and went flying up to where it was. Well, where it had happened was a cul-de-sac. So it was just a row of houses that was a little turning circle at the end. And then that was it. And there was only about um, half a dozen houses that in there. It wasn't the best area in the town. And we knew, you know, the place had potential. But what had happened was cops had been called out to a uh, a noisy party, uh, which, you know, not not unusual for a New Year's Eve. And invariably thought, just go along and say, look, can you just turn it down a bit? I've had a few complaints and that'd be the end of it. What they didn't realise was when they got out there, typically into this cul-de-sac where they were now trapped, um, that there was actually two parties literally in sort of adjoining houses. And the two houses and households didn't like each other. So depending on who you liked was which party you went to. So you had the scenario where you had two houses that were effectively you know, against each other. And there'd already been a bit of scuffles and a few problems between them. Then the cops turn up at their door and say, look, just turn the music down a bit. They had sort of, they were trying to outdo each other on the volume levels for the music. But they seemed to comply initially and kind of turn it down a bit. And there was a little bit of verbal abuse for the cops, but nothing terrible, the odd sly shout and whatever, invariably from the brave one at the back. But anyway, so that was it, job done. So they leave the address, they come out of the address and this car comes driving down the road towards them and it's all over the road. And it basically wobbles past them and ends up, it goes onto a driveway and obviously he's intending to park on his driveway, but the driver is so drunk, he overshoots and basically drives into the side of his house. So of course they go running over to see if he's all right. It's very apparent that he can literally barely stand. He's so drunk. So he gets taken out of this car and arrested. Um, Unfortunately, what happened was the two houses um, had sort of witnessed this and they were aware. And the guy who was a drink driver um, lived in that close and was well known, you know. So they realized that he was getting arrested. Of course, they weren't very happy about it. 
So the next thing you know, you've got this scenario where you've got this angry crowd, which initially was only about 10 people standing around these two cops who've now got this drink driver in handcuffs and they're up against the wall, literally backs against the wall of one of the houses. Um, and they're having to, they've got batons drawn and they're literally having to sort of take swipes at people with their batons to keep them back. So they put up an urgent assistance quite rightly. So we, as I say, we've grabbed our batons, we drive off to this address and as we come round the corner, there's already uh, a couple of other cop cars there, but they're also having similar problems. And basically the cops are hemmed into this sort of semicircle around one of the houses. By now a police dog's turned up, which is fantastic. Um, and that also is he's working the dog in like an arc around the cops to keep them, you know, keep the crowd back and keep them safe. But they're starting to throw things now. You know, there's the odd bottle coming over and, you know, bits and pieces they're finding on the floor. We basically had to, we went running down the hill. There were so many cars parked in the close now that we couldn't get down there. So we had to abandon our police car halfway up the hill. And then six of us run down with our batons drawn above our heads and basically kind of running down to get involved. And what happened was we went piling into the crowd, sort of pushed them back enough, and then all of us tried to withdraw back up the hill with the drink driver prisoner, the dog keeping people back and all the rest of it. But unfortunately, what happened was the crowds basically withdrew slightly so that they were out of sort of biting range of the dog and also us swiping with our batons. But then, of course, they started finding the missiles. So they started breaking up a low wall that was nearby throwing the bricks on the floor, which then split into kind of, you know, four handy-sized chunks to throw at us. So we were faced in this position that we were public order cops and all we had was a baton, not a helmet, not a shin guard, you know, not a box, nothing uh, between us. We're now in this line, protective line, in front of the cops that have nicked the guy for drink drive and we're slowly working our way back up the hill while all the time we're getting pelted with rocks and bottles that were smashing around us, you know, it was um, it was quite a you know quite a decent kickoff, quite frankly. And you know, two hours before, we'd have been well placed to deal with it with all of our equipment. But typically, law of sod says that um, when these things happen, you know, you'll basically have your thin T-shirt to protect you from the flying bricks. Uh, needless to say, we all got out unscathed virtually. I think there was a few, you know, cuts and bruises. Uh, Mr. Drink Driver was arrested and the parties uh, eventually kind of dissipated and, and people went their, their separate ways. So it was a bit of a kind of two halves, really, a public order. The vast majority of public order is police in demos, standing there getting shouted at, spat on and abused all day long and not really able to do a lot about it. Um, and then the other side is you actually get a decent disturbance. You know, at one time there was probably... 50 odd people in the crowd I suppose in you know throwing things at us and what have you as I say there'll be people out there listening to this going that's that's not a riot now I was in a riot you know um but it was the sort of closest I came and interestingly technically in the eyes of the law to be a riot uh, it has to be more than 12 people but also um if let's say it happens in a town center and like the town center gets destroyed and all the shops are smashed to bits um if the chief constable of that area um, says that was a riot, then they're all able to, then basically it's the police's job to pay out for the damage. So I can't tell you how many large disturbances we've had, you know, that involved kind of 25, 50, you know, 100 people. They were never, ever declared riots. And that way, the chief constable never had to pay for, for the damage. So there we go. So that's a little bit about public order and one of the incidents I dealt with. Hopefully you found that interesting. As I say, that was uh, episode 17, I think. 
downloads going well again this week. And as you probably know, we're on YouTube. Um, so you can also go onto YouTube and add some comments if you want. I've also cheekily added a buy me a coffee link. So if you were liking what you heard and wanted to show your appreciation, a couple of pounds, you could buy me a coffee if you wanted to. But absolutely no pressure. It is free. And uh, by all means, come back. Don't let that put you off. So I'll speak to you again soon. Take it easy. Bye.